welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. One of the most important ways we orient toward God and His way is through the Bible. We believe God speaks to us and to our particular situations through His Word, and so we stand for our scripture reading as a way of giving our attention to the Word of God, and it is clearly a sign of respect we're standing because we're saying, this isn't just any other word. This is God's Word, so we stand out of respect, and we stand as though we are ready to hear it and receive it. So would you stand for our scripture reading? It's on page 1092, and it comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. If you were here last week, this passage is right on the heels of the one that we looked at last week. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The shorter catechism of the Westminster, Westminster Confession of Faith asks, what is the chief end of man? Then it answers its own question. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And this provides a wonderful summary of a major biblical theme. A human being's chief purpose is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. This is essentially taken right out of places like 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. That says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Or Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We go over to Exodus 20, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. This is where God gives Moses and the people, the instructions they are to live by, and they're to bind these things to their heart and never let them get too far away. And in Exodus chapter 20, the whole thing begins, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And if you want to squeeze that all down to something really simple, God is saying, I am the Lord your God, worship me and me only. So, our primary vocation as the people of God is to worship Him. Our job is to honor and glorify God with our words, actions, attitudes, our overall posture in life, the relationships we have 
our choices, and on and on we go. We do not live for ourselves, governed merely by our own desires or malfunctions or urges. Rather, we live to honor God and make his name known. We worship him. Last week, we talked about how our baptism tells the story of what God has done and is doing in our lives and how our baptism connects us to the family of God and is, in fact, our initiation into the family of God. Immediately after Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people responded in faith and were baptized. And right after this, we find today's scripture reading. They devoted themselves, this mass of people who had just recently stepped into this new reality of oriented toward God and toward King Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This band of Christ followers, were told, met daily to worship God. And they worshiped God in keeping with their Jewish traditions through song, hymns, through prayer, through studying scripture and in keeping with Jesus' teaching, by celebrating the Lord's Supper, by sharing their possessions with each other, and by being the church together. Their whole lives, in other words, began to reorient around their confidence, trust, faith in Jesus Christ. This was no benign belief in God. Yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe it. This was none of that. Their belief in Jesus rerouted their entire existence. And this whole life reorientation around God and his purposes became their primary mission in their lives. Or to put it simply, their lives became offerings of worship to God, their king. So I'll say it again. The primary work of the people of God is to worship him like this. We do this individually by living in a way that honors him and points to him. And we could talk all kinds of stuff about how do you individually live a life of worship before God. But we also worship God communally, and probably not surprisingly, our focus today is on this communal aspect of worshiping God together. We worship God by connecting with other brothers and sisters in Christ and being the church with them, by praying together with them, by celebrating the Lord's Supper together, by bearing one another's burdens, by singing together, by learning his word together. We do exactly what they did in Acts chapter 2. And this has been the story of the church throughout its history. Music styles have changed. Architecture has changed. Preaching has changed. The Lord's Supper varies from tradition to tradition. But sift all that out and what's left is this. The people of God regularly gather to worship him, and this has been going on since the church began. Where they do it and how they do it varies. That they do it is a constant since the very beginning of the church, and even well before that, in the Jewish tradition from which Christianity was birthed. And this is why when you leave and walk out those doors and turn left, you'll see four words on that wall in the lobby. 
And one of those four key words is worship. And this is why. Worship is a non-negotiable for every follower of Jesus. And it's one of the things we do as a church family. And at its essence, worship is our response to who God is and to what he has done. I want you to think about that. Worship is our response to who God is and to what he has done. Now, I find that definition kind of, eh, a little too textbookish for me. So let's try this. Worship is the uncontainable and overflowing response of the one who has encountered God and seen and experienced who he is and what he has done. Worship is the reaction of the one who knows the depth of their own depravity and selfishness and then discovers who God is and what God has done to rescue and redeem and renovate them into the person they were originally created and meant to be. Worship then is the response, the overwhelming and uncontainable response of someone who has encountered God and has no other option but to bow before him and adore him. I'm going to take my pastor and leader hat off for a moment. I'll put it back on. You'll know when I put it back on. I started following Jesus in 1983. And I started following Jesus because one night in my bedroom at my parents' house, Jesus showed himself to me in a profound and undeniable way. Prior to that, God had been an interesting idea, kind of a box to check. But that in, night in 1983, he spoke to me in a real and powerful way, and I woke up the next day, and I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, but I woke up the next day and the whole world looked different to me. And I can't explain this, but I felt different. And I was at the starting line, and I underscore starting line, of actually, slowly, gradually becoming different. And throughout my faith journey, the practice of worship, alone and with others, has been essential to my growth and relationship with Jesus. And for our purposes today, I am narrowing down the purposeful times of prayer, singing, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and engaging Scripture to be what I'm talking about when I say worship. Worship has opened me up to see me more clearly, to see my need for God. Worship has been a practice that has helped me experience God's love instead of just thinking about the fact that God loves me. The singing part of worship, again, one of these pieces that many of us sort of deal ourselves out of for a hundred different reasons, but the singing part of worship and the praying together part of worship have been especially transformative to me. Theories and ideas and beliefs have become stirring realities through the practice of worship. There's a vulnerability that is necessary to worship God in song and in prayer 
with others, and it's just easier not to do it. There's a vulnerability that is necessary to sing and adore God with others and to pray with others, and it's easier not to do it. And there's a vulnerability that is formed by worshiping God in song and in prayer with others. And I've experienced both of these in my many years seeking to follow God. But I've had to work at this, and I've been working at it since 1983. If you're around here more than today, you've been here for three days, you've considered Oak Hills your church, you know that I am a massive schmuck in a thousand different ways. But this is something that I can say that has genuinely flowed from me, this working at worship literally since 1983 for reasons that I can only say are because of God's goodness to me. So today we're talking about the practice of worshiping God together on Sundays, in song, through prayer, at the table, and in the study of his word. And this gathering, this gathering is essential to my relationship with Jesus and to the formation of my inner being in Christ's likeness. And I haven't put the pastor leader hat back on yet. It's essential to me. I'm talking here about Mike the Christ follower. Mike the fellow traveler and frequent stumbler on the road to Christ's likeness. I need a gathering like this. I don't just need to show up at it and watch it. I need to step into it and be part of it. I need a gathering like this where we sing even if we can't sing. We pray even if our minds are thinking about in and out. We engage in the scriptures even if we have no idea what the Bible is trying to say. And we come to the table even if we don't get what all the hype is about. And we're present with each other in this room even if we'd rather go fill up our coffee or pretend to go to the bathroom so we can avoid having to sing another song or greet someone. This gathering matters in my life with Jesus, and I would suggest it matters in our life with Jesus. This kind of gathering can happen in a home. It can happen in a room at a school. It could happen at some other church. It can happen wherever. But Christ followers need regular gatherings where they are worshiping God with others. And yet for many Christians these days, gathering to worship God has lost its appeal and its importance, so it's not much of a priority. I mean, it's nice and it's good when it fits in the calendar, but it's not considered crucial. And I realize, and some are watching online, there are elderly and there are those who are sick who simply cannot get to a gathering. I totally get that, and we aren't talking about that. But for the rest of us, I would contend a gathering like this, doesn't have to be here, doesn't have to be at Oak Hills, could be in a home somewhere with others, could be at another church, could be wherever, but a gathering like this on a regular basis where the purpose of the gathering is to worship God with others is essential to our spiritual health and to the spiritual health of our church because something happens in this kind of gathering that does not happen in most of the other gatherings we have in life. To say that better, a worship gathering should be unlike most of the other gatherings 
in our lives. And the question is, how is this different than most of the other gatherings? Let me tell you a story to try to get at this. This past Tuesday, Julie and I and a group of people from the church went down to San Francisco to see the Broadway show Les Miserables. Now, Julie and I first saw this in about 1991 or 1992. We saw it with her parents, and it turned out to be this extremely meaningful time with her parents, and it, the music of it was iconic, and it lodged in our souls. We've listened to it ever since. There was a huge impact from going to that show with her parents, and we've seen it three or four times since. And like I said, we went with some people from the church on Tuesday, uh, Wednesday night, and it was an amazing show. It was at the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco, this absolutely gorgeous building that we were in. Les Miserables conveys an unbelievable message about grace, and the possibility of transformation and change because of God's goodness and love. In this theater, there's a stage. It's kind of a high stage. Up on the stage are actors and singers and dancers, very talented artists. There's an orchestra pit. We happen to be sitting right up in the front so we could look down and see the orchestra pit with very talented musicians who play the iconic music of Les Miserables. And there's an audience, and we were part of the audience. And at crucial points, usually after a heart-wrenching song by one of the talented singers, we in the audience applauded. The show was incredible. The message is amazing. And we sat in the audience for about two and a half hours and watched it. But the question is, why did we go? What was our motivation for going to this thing? I would suggest we went to see it. We went to feel it. We went to get something from it. We went to be moved in some way. Or simply, we went and paid for us. We didn't go to honor Victor Hugo, the guy who wrote the novel from which Les Miserables was based on. We didn't go to honor Cameron McIntosh, the guy who brought this novel to life on the stage back in 1986 or so. We went to the show to see something incredible and hear a great message and be moved by it. We went, in other words, for our own sake. And it was really fun, and I'd do it again. But I was thinking about this Thursday. Why we go determines what we do when we get there. We went for us. So when we got there, we were there to receive. We were there to get. And from the day we were born, at least it seems to me, we are taught and trained to be about ourselves. We're trained to do what we want, to get what we want, and to get it when we want it. We learn early on that life is about us. And this sort of inflated sense of self is actually built right into us from day one. We don't even need to learn it. It's there in Elsie right now at three weeks old. It's just part of us to think that it's all about us. And in some ways, our culture is built and sustained on this notion. Virtually every setting we are in, every gathering we are part of then, work, grocery store, golf course, restaurant, movie theater, even many of our relationships are oriented around us and our needs and our wants and our desires and our preferences. And if we aren't satisfied, we go somewhere that will satisfy. 
We're trained in this mindset from the day we arrive on the planet. It is the American way. What we want, what we like, what we think we need, what suits us, drives the agenda. And as far as it relates to a car we're thinking of buying or a burger we're thinking of eating, I suppose this is just the way it is and I'm not sure I'd want it any different. But think about this mindset and this posture as it relates to following God and worshiping Him. And if you spend three reflective seconds thinking about this, you realize worshiping God cannot coexist with me getting what I want. One or the other is going to steer the ship. One or the other is going to be the priority. So let me ask this question. Is this gathering like Les Miserables or very unlike Les Miserables? Is this gathering a show that is designed to do something to me? Or is it something different? When I come into this space and into this gathering, am I part of the cast that is performing on the stage? Or am I part of the audience that is watching? And I'm not saying this for me. I'm saying this is what I want us to think about. What's my role in this? What's my posture when we gather? Who is this for? And what is this about? Why we come here will determine what we do once we get here. So if we come here for us, for me, then we will come in a posture of receiving and getting. And you know what? That's not all bad. That's okay. But if we come here for God as well, we will come here to offer something. We will come here to give something. And according to the Bible and the testimony of the first followers of Jesus, in the gathering of God's people, God is the audience. And he's the only one in the audience. And we, all of us, are on the stage. Think Orpheum Theater. Here we all are, up on the stage, singing, dancing, acting, playing the music. And we look out into the bright lights and we can't say anything. But if they shut the lights off, the only one in the sitting in the audience is God. That's what this gathering is. We are on the stage. You are on the stage. You are one of the performers when you come into this space, offering your time and attention and voice and prayers to God, who is the only one in the audience. Think of the way we often comment on what happens in a worship gathering on a Sunday. Hey, that was a great worship service. Well, I hope that's true. I like those. Wow, Mike, that was a great message. I like that. Strokes my ego. Rather have that than, you know, at least Sunday's only seven days away. You can try again. But when I get too hung up on whether or not it was great worship or a great worship service or a great message, I'm thinking like an audience member instead of a cast member. See, the real issue is not whether we have great worship services, but whether we, that is you and I, are great worshipers. The real issue is not whether we got something out of it, but whether we gave our best to God while we were in it. The real issue is not whether we were blessed by the service, but if God was honored and God was glorified. 
by the service. See, this setting is unlike most in our lives because in this setting, it is not about us. It's about God. And in this setting, we are not in the audience regardless of where we are sitting or standing. We're on the stage. In this setting, everything we do and say and sing is for an audience of one. And rest easy. The chief aim of human beings is to worship God and enjoy Him forever. And the greatest source of joy a human being can experience is living a poured out life for the sake of God and others. So we will get something, but it's not our focus. You see the paradigm shift? Do you see how upside down this is? Do you see how in the world it works one way, in the kingdom it works another way? See, this gathering is about recalibrating to a God-centered reality where we live and move and have our being before an audience of one, here and beyond here. We sing, we pray, we engage God's word, we love one another to honor him, to serve him, to prioritize him, and this practice changes us individually and changes us as a church. I could go on but I'm not going to go on. I actually would like us to enter into a time where we celebrate and we worship and we do so as cast members. And there's an audience of one. And his name is King Jesus. See, we gather to proclaim the story of God and we are the cast members. We have a role. You have a role. Your presence matters. Your voice matters. And God is the audience. Would you stand as we take some time to adore him? And we're going to begin this by reciting the Apostles' Creed together as an expression of our worship to him. This was written a long time ago. Uh, there's various thoughts of where, who wrote it or what group wrote it. It doesn't matter. It's been around for a couple thousand years. And it declares and states what we believe and where we stand as followers of Jesus. So let's read this together. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? And again, I want to invite you to hold your hands out as you bring an offering to this time of worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe that you are the one and only King. And in these remaining moments, we want to adore you. We want to celebrate you. We want to be vulnerable before you and make this about you, not about preserving ourselves. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that in these moments that you will again be at work be speaking to us, be moving us and giving us a sense 
of what you desire from us. We offer this to you. We give you our lives. We give you our voices. We give you our attention. You are worthy of our praise. Amen.